Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. And if this would be of some help to you, it's page 709 in our church Bibles. In just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 20. Just by way of reminder, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. So the reason why we're here is this is where we should be. Verse 20. I'm going to read it all the way to verse 35. Our, our concern just lies with verse 30, though. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. I think if you have the King James, it says eternal damnation. He said this, verse 30, because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they went, they sent someone to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. May God give us understanding of his word. If you would, please, let's bow together and pray. Seek the help that we need. From God our Father. Almighty, infinite Father, faithfully loving your own, here in our weakness you find us, falling before your throne. And so we thank you, Father, that your throne is a throne of grace and power. And we ask for both now. For our need, uh, my need is great so that we openly proclaim our weakness, so that at this moment, Christ's power may rest on us. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. I've told you often that it's essential that when you read the Gospels, we don't simply read them as biography or history or even read them personally as in, okay, I'm going to open up the Gospel and I'm going to find out what I need to do so I can do it, perhaps feel a little bit better, looking for in the Gospels of all places a list of things we need to do. No, rather we read the Gospels as they are. They are good news about a person. So for example, you might want to turn one page back, chapter 1, verse 1. Mark tells us the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's cue, right? This is the gospel. This is good news. And Mark's going to let the gospel tell us the gospel. 
And if we do that, then what we will very quickly find in the gospel is that this gospel is about a person, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Mark does, and you can see this in the opening chapters, is he keeps the reader's eyes on Jesus. What was promised and predicted in the Old Testament, what was preached by John the Baptist, therefore uh, John, if you would, is preaching Jesus Christ. He is the good news. Now, when one hears good news, the typical reaction, you know, if they're of sound mind, when they hear good news, is what? Well, if you're like me, when I hear good news, it's a whole lot of joy, it's a whole lot of praise, it's a whole lot of, hey, this is good, this is really good. This week, my wife and I just got a, just a bit of good news. It wasn't much, but it was just a bit, and I was just like, high five. And right, I was hanging there for like a few minutes, and, and apparently last week, Nicole did not give out any high fives. But the point is, Thus far in Mark's gospel, if your Bible is open, chapter 1 and verse 40 and following, the man with leprosy, the paralytic, chapter 2, verse 1 and following, Levi the tax collector, and many of us tax collecting friends and, quote, sinners, chapter 2, verse 13 and following, they are hap, hap, happy. Why is this so? Well, the obvious reason is they have met their master. They've embraced the good news. I'm not my own anymore. Jesus Christ has saved me from the punishment due of my reckless ways and he saved me from all the effects of this fallen world and I belong to him forever and ever, world without end. Good news. Good news. So what we find then, and this is important, Mark is showing us that the people who understand that they are actually in great need, those who understand that they are not all right, that they are not righteous and they are needy and they know that they could never attain in and of themselves the righteousness what is needed and they see Jesus Christ as the only answer, we find in that humility they are helped, they are greatly helped and they're able to glory in the gospel in the good news. So, they're not fighting Jesus they're not fighting his gospel. They're not fighting um, his mission to save the world. However, Mark also shows us that those who think themselves in the know, right? Those who think themselves that they're not really in any state of need at all. Those who think themselves, if you would, strong, people of opinion, power, leadership, whether it's applied or actual. We find in Mark that they are hostile to Jesus. In other words, it goes like this. Those who think they're all right, and they're not really in a state of need or total depravity such as the good news tells us we are, we find that they are not happy, that they are not helped, and they are actually hostile to Jesus. And you can see this if your Bible's open. The leaders of the religious establishment, right? The religious Pharisees. All throughout chapter 2 and beginning in chapter 3 now, we'll call them the moral majority. Hostile to Jesus, his message and his mission. The leaders in, in politics, the Herodians, chapter 3, verse 6. Hostile to Jesus, his message and his mission. And when this morning, we're going to discover that the leaders in Jesus' own home, his mother and brothers, at least for now, are hostile to Jesus, his message and his mission. And some of the brightest theologians from Jerusalem, that's verse 22, the teachers of the law, they are hostile to Jesus, his message and and his mission. And loved ones, we should know this. All who oppose Jesus, his message, and his mission, either by contempt or even neglect, 
hostile to Jesus. Who said that? Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. There's no neutrality. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no sidelines in the Christian movement. And of course, here in Mark's gospel, we find that Jesus has been gathering his people, freeing them from their sin, freeing them from the bondage of devil, of the devil and sickness. And you know, just on a, like a practical level, you would think, you would think with all that goodness going on, sins forgiven, people are helped, people are healed, uh, a massive transformation of demon-possessed people, you would think that most people would be what? Hop, hop, happy. But clearly they are not. Why not? Well, let's find out. So Mark begins telling us the reaction here. This is our first point of his own family. Jesus, he's mad, right? The reaction of his family to his works. Verse 20, if your Bible's open, the crowd is full. That's the norm for Jesus. Jesus and his apostles' tummies are empty. Verse 20, they were not even able to eat because of the crowds. And apparently the news of Jesus had reached his family, the effects of his ministry and the words of his ministry, verse 21, so that when his family heard about this, they went to, look at that, take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. In other words, if we could listen in to their table conversation, right? There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers, and they're talking at lunchtime, we'll say, and they're like, oh my gosh, can you believe what he's saying? What is his deal? Healing people on this demonic stuff and calling him the self, the son of man. Who does this guy think he is? So they're like, you know what? Let's finish lunch. And after lunch, let's go get him. He's mad. Now I want you to let that settle in your mind for a moment. They think, the people that know Christ best for 30 years, right, with him, they think he's mad. Again, let it settle in your mind. His mother and his brothers think he's mad. Now, loved one, this is a picture of every human being apart from grace. This is human frailty quite clearly. This is our condition apart from grace. The embodiment of truth, God in flesh, complete goodness right before you, doing so much for so long, so good. And the best they can do is make a judgment on him and say he's mad. Now, as of late, I keep telling myself over and over again, Human beings, by nature, would include me, of course. By nature, we are so confident in our own wisdom. We are so confident in our own approach to things. And God seems either like foolish or unreliable or unfaithful. When by nature, we do things however we want, we say whatever we want, and we move so much by instinct, so much by how we feel about things. And there is no health in that. Two phrases of concern here. Verse 21, take charge of him. Literally, let's lay hold of Jesus. Let's put Jesus under our control. The audacity of such a thought. Take charge of him. Second phrase, because he is out of his mind. He, in other words, he's lost himself. His self is gone. He's, he's outside of himself. Now again, these are people close to Jesus. They don't believe him. His brothers, according to John 7 at that time, didn't believe him. So the notion of Jesus' family all falling in line doesn't even fit the facts. In fact, you know, just this comes to mind, literally. In apologetics, so often we say, well, the reason why kids are Christians is because their parents are Christians. It's not because there's a real God and there's a real Jesus and there's a real gospel. It's just because their mom and dad do it, so they do it. This puts that 
on record. It's like, not really. It didn't even happen to Jesus. And so his family says he's mad. They're going to take him under control. And Jesus' response to this, and we're going to be in this more fully, Lord willing, next time, is not very emotional, isn't it? He's not like, Mother, you never support me in my work. He doesn't say that. Verse 33, whoever does God's will, that's my true family. That's my mom, and that's my sister, and that's my brother. Which is extremely telling, isn't it? Because so many people determine that the most important thing in all the world is their family. And they've actually made an idol of their family. Where everything of consequence, everything of decision, planning, life has to run through the family first. And then, maybe or maybe not, Jesus Christ is a close second. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to bring that idol down. That's point number one. They say he's mad. The reaction of his family. Second, he's bad. The reaction of the religious authorities. Now, Mark takes us to another scene where people, this time the religious intelligentsia of the day, right? They're prepared to make a judgment on Jesus. Now, I want you to see this. This is much more than just your average scribe coming into town. These are guys from the home office, Jerusalem, right? If you've ever worked at a, a big company, you know this. You have your, maybe you still work now. There's a district manager that comes in, and you kind of get used to that. And then there's a regional manager that comes in. But when people from the home office come in, you're like, ah, right? It's one thing when the other guys, but home office guys, let's, let's get in line. So the news of Jesus' words and deeds, chapter 3, verse 8, had reached Jerusalem. The consequence of that, verse 22, is here comes the big guns, the teachers of the law, Come down from Jerusalem. Now, uh, grammatos is the Greek word, King James Version, ESV Version, or English Standard Version, excuse me. That, they say scribes. NIV says the teachers of the law. We'll just say scribes. So what I want you to have in your mind is these are the brainiacs. Not, not to be mean, but this is who they are. And they're ready to make a judgment on the words and deeds of Jesus. It helps me to think it like this. So let's say, Lord willing, we're all going to have a nice Thanksgiving and there's going to be lots of people around our table and maybe you're going to tell a story and in the story you're like, okay, well, this thing was 12 pounds and then there is, you know, Uncle Milton, we'll call him, fastidious Uncle Milton. He says, well, actually, it was 12.869342 pounds. And he's right, right? He's right, but... You know, it's Thanksgiving. But anyway, (laughs) point is, that was these men. They were very, very fastidious. They wouldn't miss dot. They wouldn't miss comma, right? They wouldn't miss anything. So I want you to see what's happening. Here's Jesus Christ. And Isaiah said about Jesus that there was nothing in appearance that people would like him, right? So he didn't appear smart. He didn't appear capable. He didn't appear powerful nor desirable. Then Jesus calls 12 men, remember last time? And they don't appear smart. They don't appear capable. They don't appear powerful or desirable. And then you've got the high holy teachers of the law from the home office, Jerusalem. And by golly, they appear smart and they appear capable and powerful. They have their long flowing robes and all their high holy accessories. They come into town. They're feeling it, right? Very capable, very authorized. We're going to make our judgment on Jesus. So in one sense, the scene is comical. And in another sense, it's almost as comical as their response. Verse 22b, do you see it there? Essentially what they're saying in all of this is that Jesus' power comes from the devil. Right? Beelzebub, prince of the demons, lord of the dunghill, lord of the flies. Essentially, this is devil power. 
The devil's helping him do this, which reminds me of a fantastic story. Can I tell it to you? It'll be brief. Way long time ago when Pastor Joe was like five years old around there, my mother had the case where she had the fingernail polish, right? And it was beautiful. She had all the different colors and all that. And so one morning she's doing her nails and I'm like, I need to get in there and I need to do some artwork. All the different colors. So she takes her tub and she puts it under the bathroom cupboard and and I just kind of take some paper towels, four to be exact, because I'm a little fastidious person. (laughs) Okay, but anyway, take four and I put it down on the white rug that's covering her white rug in her bathroom. And I take out the fingernail polish and I'm going to paint my Mona Lisa. It's great. You know, the smell, by the way, was really great too. But we're just painting and painting and then here comes the paint, soaks through the paper towel, soaks onto the white rug, soaks through the white rug onto the whiter rug that the white rug is over. And here comes my mother into the bathroom and she says a few things which I can't repeat. It's a bad day for her. And she said, what are you doing? And it was great. The first thing that came to my mind was, the devil made me do it. <laughs> oh, that's what they're saying here. The, the response of these, of these scribes to the ministry of Jesus wasn't really investigation, but it was condemnation, wrapped in all kinds of accusation. It's the devil. Now, we need to stop for a moment because this is very, very important. As I began to get to this point in my study, something struck me. Mark tells us that Jesus' own family, they say he's bad, or excuse me, mad. The response of the authorities, religious authorities, is that he's bad. If your Bible's open, verse 21, the word said, verse 22 said, it's written in what's called the imperfect, meaning that they kept saying it. Over and over again, right? His family, he's mad, he's mad, he's mad, he's mad. His, uh, the religious elite, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad. In other words, they were tremendously confident that they were completely correct in their assessment of Jesus. Here's the point. They're both way off. And what I want to say to you, in light of that, generally speaking, many people are like, it's so, okay, it's so easy to identify the works of the devil and works of Jesus. It's cut and dry, they say. It's a no-brainer. But clearly, for many people, it is not. Now, if you're tracking with me, you know, apply that to people, apply that to churches, apply that to pastors, apply that to books, apply that to ministries. They're like, okay, they got a cross, they got a picture of Jesus, and they got a picture of the Bible. They must be fine. They must be good. Many might say, it is so easy to identify what is really of Christ and what is not of Christ. But after reading this, maybe we can say this. Maybe we ought to be humble enough to say that everything is not so easy. And therefore, it is only by God's grace that we can decipher the difference. And ultimately, that last sentence is completely true. It is only by God's grace that we'll be able to decipher the difference between what is of Christ and what is not. Now, the religious might On Jesus' badness, they come with two accusations. He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. In in essence, this is the devil's work. So they couldn't deny what was taking place. Clearly, people were being helped. Demons were being cast out. They understood this. They also understood that there were people who were around who could testify to the fact that Jesus was accomplishing this. And of course, the people who Jesus had touched and healed, they could verify that Jesus had done this. So what were they to do? They saw it. Others saw it. People experienced it. Well, this is their path. 
if you could not deny what was happening, perhaps you could come up with an alternative explanation to how it was happening. So in essence, they seek to turn Jesus into like a sorcerer, uh, black magic, uh, what is it, Voldemort uh, from Harry Potter, right? This is the work of darkness, they said. And this is not the work of light. And loved ones, what is so dramatic here is the response Jesus gives them is immediate. It's, It's almost shocking. Why? Well, because Jesus had been proclaiming good news. And the evidence of that is lives are transformed. And people who are on the outside of things, they find that Jesus actually comes for outsiders. And the people who are on the inside of things, they find that at times Jesus is at odds with insiders. And they can't deal with that. And so Jesus, by his works and by his words, he turns everything on his head. He says, this is the kingdom of God. They say, no, no, this is the kingdom of the devil. That's the conflict. It's intense. There, there is absolutely no middle ground here. Now, I want you to listen carefully and hold with me through this. What is taking place in Mark 3 is exactly what took place in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's the, it's the start, Genesis 3, 15, of this conflict which works itself all through the Scriptures into that final conflict, and so it works itself all throughout history. This is Genesis three fifteen, And I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and hers. Right? At its core, these scribes are the offspring of the devil. They're the offspring of the devil. And so, when the Bible speaks about conflict, every conflict, nation versus nation, a husband to wife, parents to kids, business partner to business partner, uh, person to person, every Conflict is actually tied to this scene before us. There is clear truth and there is clear lie. Now, we shouldn't be stunned by this. The religious leaders are trying to hide behind false light. And they're saying Jesus is darkness and he's hiding behind false light. The devil. That's the kingdoms in conflict. Jesus is on the battlefield. What are the weapons of Christ? It is his gospel message And it is acts of mercy. The weapons of choice of these um, scribes. Think with me. What is the weapon of their choice? An improper understanding of the law applied. A works-based righteousness which they've held to for, for a long, long time. And that leads to accusation and condemnation on Jesus. And ultimately lies. So this, this occasion is not just like a little disagreement. This is the conflict of conflicts. Either Jesus is a loony bin, as C.S. Lewis said, or he's a liar, or he's Lord. That's what this comes down to. So the accusation here, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus is mad. He's in league with the devil. Okay, number one, he's mad. That's the family. Number two, he's bad. That's the scribes. Three, this is the response of Christ. You're sad. As in, you're sadly mistaken. So Jesus calls the scribes to him. This is the first time, if you think about it, they've had contact. Usually the scribes go through the disciples. Or if the disciples want to say something about Jesus, they go through the disciples. Or excuse me, they go to Jesus to get to the disciples. This is the first like eye-to-eye contact. And Jesus spoke to them in a parable. And you're like, oh good, now they're going to be able to understand. Not so. In the Gospel of Mark, and this is important, Mark tells us that when Jesus spoke to the crowds... And to the opponents, he frequently spoke in parables. 
And the reason why is because the parable was in part a judgment. He would not give the full explanation, and we'll learn this in chapter 4. He would not give the full explanation only to those who really, really wanted to know, i.e. the disciples. So part of the judgment is, okay, I'm going to tell you this parable, and if you really, really want to know, then you come to me and I'll give you an explanation. But if you don't want to know, you're going to hear it, and you're going to go on. That's why I say that, because people say, well, Jesus tells stories for everybody could understand. Careful there. Careful. So what Jesus is saying is simply this. What you're saying is illogical. Verse 23, how can Satan drive out Satan, right? You want people to believe that the strength of my power is of Satan and Satan is driving out Satan. And Jesus says that makes no sense at all. That's an argument from absurdity. How so? Verse 24, a kingdom in civil war eventually will collapse. Correct. Verse 25, a household, a family at odds with itself will eventually cave in upon itself. These are self-evident truths, undeniable realities. Therefore, follow his logic, verse 26, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, then he cannot stand either. So for you to want to believe, says Jesus, that I'm in league with Satan, that makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. However, let me tell you what does make sense. This is verse 27. This is, this is a, a gospel scene here. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house, right? So if you wanted to take something from a strong man's house, you can't just go in there, right? Step one, tie up the strong man. Have you seen him, right? Because you can't, again, you can't just go in there and have at it when there's a strong man there. That's clear. Okay, so who's the strong man? Well, Satan is the strong man. What are the possessions? Every one of his victims, those under his control. The context bears this out. Who then is able to tie up the strong man? Well, there's only one person who can. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what has Jesus Christ come to do? Exactly that. He has come to bind the strong man. He has come to bind the strong man. I'm going to say it one more time. He has come to bind the strong man. So I repeat myself purposely because I'm not going to give you a sermon now of five steps of how you can bind the strong man. That would make no sense at all. That's not what is being said here. Satan is bound by Christ. And Christ released the prisoners in his home. So Jesus goes to people trapped in this grip of darkness and he frees them to enjoy the light. Jesus says, in not so many words, I came to restore things back to the way they were meant to be. I came to set free those who have been trapped under the dominion of the devil, those dead in their sin, and restore them to their rightful owner, their good and loving God. Because that's the backstory of the gospel. Now stay with me. We were made by God. We were made for a relationship with God. However, we turned our back on God. And now we are under the charge of the strong man. And unless someone comes and disarms the strong man, there's no way a mere man or a mere woman can remove themselves from his charge. 
And Jesus says by implication, that is exactly what I have come to do. I have come to disarm Satan, setting God's children free, that they may become the people that God intended them to be. And that is the good news. That's the good news. And it all makes great sense. I mean, think with me. How in the Dickens is a mere man and a mere woman to be set free from their captivity? How can they break free from Satan's dark power? Well, you know what people say. Well, obviously, there's some family curse that you're going to have to break. So even after your Christianity, you're going to have to go way, way back and do some binding and loosing and all that kind of stuff. Your mom and dad were, you know, they were way too hard on you and, and we've got to go back and fix that. Or that people like Satan, I bind you in the name of, or the other alternative, which you always hear is like, you just need to get more serious about your faith. And if you got serious, then, you know, all that stuff would happen. You know... That wears me out. I told the first service, I got to fix electrical plug. I don't even know what to call it. I'm going to go in there and go, can you just help me? Really? You expect me to do all this binding and loosen? And I can't even fix my plug in my house. Unless someone comes to disarm these strengths, then our situation is absolutely hopeless. Enter Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is saying in all this, and let me just stop if you want to, read the first three chapters of the Gospel of Mark again and ask yourself, what is Mark telling you to do? And the only thing you're going to find is he says, repent and believe and follow Jesus. That's it. That's your list. Repent and believe and follow. So Jesus says, you scribes come down from Jerusalem because the word got to you that I was casting out demons. When I cast out demons, I am giving evidence that they, that, excuse me, that I have entered into that strong man's house tied him up and took his plunder home with me. Indeed, verse 27 is a small picture of the big picture of Jesus coming into the world. A world which is ruled by who? Ruled the prince of darkness, right? The prince of the power of the air, Satan. And he comes to this world, Jesus, to disarm the evil one. Time and time again, Ephesians 2 tells us, right, that by nature, every man and every woman follow the prince of the air. In essence, they're in his house and they're bound until Christ comes. And he gets after it. And he binds the strong man. And he sets the captive free. Loved ones, that is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in Luke 4, Jesus is preaching a sermon. It didn't go over too well, but he preached a sermon. He was coming. He was speaking from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Check. He has, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Why? Because they can't mend themselves. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives because they cannot loose themselves and release from darkness those prisoners because there, there is no light in them at all. So listen, if the kingdom of God has broken into this sin-filled world, would you not expect indications that the creator of everything has stepped into this planet and is doing something? Yes. So wouldn't you be surprised if there was no indication? Right? So you have Jesus walking around and he's saying nice things. People come to him with their sin. They come to him with their, their physical ailments and their possession. And he's like, well, you know, I'm sorry about that. I can't help you. Here's a good book you might want to read, but that's about all I can do for you. But he didn't do that. Why? Because the kingdom of God had come. 
in Jesus Christ. Not in its finality, we understand that, but in this saving power. Satan's power here has been halted by the ministry of Jesus. And now, post-cross, the activity of Satan is terminal, right? He, he is in his terminal phase. His doom, Luther says, his doom is sure. He moves around in his cruelty, absolutely, but he's chained because he cannot alter the outcome nor the purposes of God. If you think of it as a chessboard, he is an always checkmate and he's constrained. All he can do is move around the board, but his, his doom is sure. And in the meantime, our chief weapon is what? It is the message of the gospel. It is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because only in the ministry of Jesus, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus then invades the strong man's house. That's our position of power. Indeed, that is our only and ultimate position of power. And I say that because sometimes a text like this will be preached, you know, they'll stay here, but they'll go all over the Bible, and they're like, okay, we've got some super secret spiritual warfare activity. We're going to bind the devil and all that, and then everything's left to us. All up to me. Have you looked at me? You're looking at me now. Really? You know, I always tell you this too much, the song that we made our kids memorize when Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within, some of which is true. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. That's, that's ultimately my best and only weapon. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. It's beautiful. Final enemy, death. Final enemy, enemy is going to be destroyed. How is that enemy going to be destroyed? Well, I'll tell you how we're going to do it. We're going to bind death. Or we're going we're to conquer death through exercise, awesome diet, awesome vitamins, or chirogenics, right? No, we're going to conquer death because Jesus is, goes into that strong man's house and he disarms him of every one of his foul cruelties. So this story here, if you would, is not two equal powers. This, this is not equal forces fighting each other that we're left to wonder, okay, who's going to win? No, this is the story of the mighty power of Christ, which is displayed ultimately in his suffering. In his suffering on the cross, right? Don't miss that. Uh, the, the scribes come out puffy-chested, ready to get after it. Jesus is low ready to die for sin. And that's why Jesus then says what he says. Verse 28, right? You guys say this is devilish power. Well, let me tell you, verse 28, truly, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin, or if you like, guilty of a sin which is eternal in its consequences, right? In other words, this sin is of eternal consequence for the person who commits it, and in essence, they will be paying for this sin for all eternity. Now, before we get there, let's remember what Jesus said in verse 28 in the opening section. What did he say? All sins will be forgiven. Right? So I used about six or seven commentaries and I looked through every one and no one said what my best friend J.I. Packer said. It's highlighted in blue. If you can't see it. He's a good guy. This is what he said because you don't want to just skip over all sins are going to be forgiven if you're a sinner, right? Listen to what he said. All sins will be forgiven. The sins of youth and age 
the sins of head, hand, tongue, and imagination, the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. The doctrine here laid down is the crown and glory of the gospel. The very first thing it promises is free pardon, full of forgiveness, complete remission, remission without money and without price. You just want to thank God. Now we have to get to the rough part. Verse 29. Sometimes this frightens people. This is what I want you to see. The reason why Jesus says this is explained in verse 30. You see it there. And indeed, the answer to verse 29 and this issue of the unpardonable sin is addressed both in verse 28 and verse 30. These scribes said, Jesus has an evil spirit in operation in him. And they were then assigning the action of God to a satanic source. That's what happened. They couldn't explain it away, so they explained it this way. This is demonic power. And by the way, for the first 200 years of Christianity, the Jews would use this line on Christ. They would assign the action of God to Satan himself. Therefore, these scribes were knowingly and wickedly rejecting the saving power and the grace of God towards people, right? Jesus was rescuing people from sin's power and from sin's penalty, and it was all by means of his grace. And they said, no, 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 this is not God. This is Satan. Now, you understand that. Jesus rescuing people, saving people from sin's power and penalty. He was doing it by grace. And they said, no, no, this is not God. This is Satan. Hence the warning, verse 29. In the context, it's a warning for these, for these men, right? These men who find themselves on the very edge of an unforgivable sin. So again, this is not some kind of like philosophical debate. Jesus would say, if you want to come down here from home office in Jerusalem and say what you're saying, then you need to know this, right? You need to know this, and this is a principle for all. The willfully blind, those who refuse Christ's truth, who misrepresent, if you would, truth, there is ultimately no forgiveness because they refuse the only way of forgiveness God has provided, right? If the only forgiveness is provided in Christ, the one who enters the strong man's house and binds him, and you say that is satanic power, because again, verse 27 is a picture of the gospel, then Jesus says, okay, then tell me where you're going to find forgiveness. Tell me where you're going to find forgiveness. Because humanity's ultimate need before God is what? It's forgiveness. And you see, that's the issue here. They refuse the forgiveness of God that he provides in Jesus Christ and they say, Jesus, his message, mission, is of the devil. Demonic power. And so it all comes down to this and this will close. This is, this is what Mark has done. And it's, it's very masterful how he does this. Jesus' family said on his deeds and words, he's a bad man. The scribes, Religious intelligentsia. Based on the words and deeds Jesus, he's a bad man. Jesus says, no, no, listen carefully. I'm the God man. And I'm your only hope in life and death. 
C.S. Lewis again, is Jesus a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? Four brief applications, and I'm just going to read them, and they're super brief. Number one, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy for every one of our ailments. Every one of our ailments, including sickness and death. Why? Because Jesus Christ has defeated death. He has defeated death. Two, this is not some super secret special forces plan for spiritual warfare. This is open air gospel. This is all done in the light. This is a gospel remedy. Jesus is the strength behind this all. Three, this comes by way of exhortation. Be careful. If you always find yourself a humpty grumpty Christian where everything is either bad or makes you mad or you're always sad, here's why. Jesus has won a great victory for his people and his church. Let's enjoy it and let's apply it, right? The good news transform lives and people were half, half, happy and the only people that were unhappy, the Humpty Grumpties or what? The religious people. They can't enjoy what Jesus has won. Mad, bad, or they're always sad. Final thing. No one can sit on the sidelines. Right? You can't be a spectator here. So we're not eating popcorn saying, go Jesus, go, you know, the fight. No, 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 listen. No third party Christians. Jesus said it. Either we are for him and we do our best to gather souls or we're against him. And again, remember, against Jesus is, is, is our neglect is included when we're against him. So again, for him we gather souls. Against him, which includes neglect, we scatter souls. And there is no health in us then. Good news. Good news. It's got to change us. It's got to change the way we view the world. It's got to change the way we hear things. It's got to change the way we approach things. May God help us to that endeavor. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the beauty of it, the mercy in it, the reality and truth. This is not some human plan. This is a divine plan which began before, before time. This comes from all eternity that God, you would send your son Jesus. He'd walk this earth absolutely perfect and precious. Go to a cross according to your will. Die a painful, horrible death. Bleed. Die. Risen. Third day. Ascended later on. And now Christ sits at your right hand, happily interceding for his own. Father, help us hold on tight. Hold on tight to this truth. We're so prone to look to so many other remedies. So many other remedies to where we would find our cure. And the cure is always there right before us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, may you bless and keep us. May you cause your face to shine upon us. And please be gracious to us. May you turn your face towards us and give us peace. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'm going to hang around here if you have a question.